Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm joined by my colleague and Bang to Rights regular, Dave Porter. Hi, Dave. Hi, Pete. And we're also joined by Carmel Thomason, who's joined us from the start of this term and new to the podcast altogether. Hi, Carmel. Yeah, hello. Thank you for inviting me for the first time. You're very welcome. Welcome to Bang to Rights. Now, after trips to Canada and last week's live Q&A with Claire Sanderson from Women's Health magazine, we're back in more familiar surroundings here in the Northern Quota newsroom. We're also in more familiar territory too because this week we'll be looking at Ofcom's new role as an internet regulator. We'll also be discussing the Downing, Downing Street's response to the walkout by lobby journalists last week from a controversial Downing Street briefing on EU trade talks. A bit arcane but it did have a quite a, a high profile um, headline um, as a result of that. But Dave, first of all, what's caught your eye this week in the news? Uh, well, funny enough, yesterday I was chatting to, well, I gave a talk to students on inquest and I mentioned Regulation 28 orders, which maybe not a lot of people know about, and it's basically where a coroner can issue a report uh, on what's called a PFD, Prevent Future Deaths, and it's their recommendations to whichever body to basically tighten up procedures, etc., etc. Um, the Chief Coroner's guidelines are that, you know, this might be a personal tragedy for one family, but, you know, a Regulation 28 may... Um, give them some solace and it may never happen to somebody else. Came into work this morning, an email popped in from the judiciary um, about an, actually a Regulation 28 uh, which a coroner had issued in South Manchester. Very sad tale of a woman who mentally suffered from mental health problems and uh, she'd been finding it really difficult to access uh, mental health services, uh, had been turned down twice and only the third application to a mental health team was accepted. Subsequent to that, she, she was on the motorway and pulled over uh, and jumped off a bridge very tragically. Um, but the coroner was basically, in this PD, PFD report, Regulation 28, said, really, if she had been accepted at the first, uh, you know, application to come under your mental health assessment team, it's likely that this would never have happened. And, and made various recommendations as to, you know, what should take place. So it's kind of quite fortuitous, really. And perhaps something we don't think about that coroners you know, have a power to make recommendations to, you know, change. Who knows, I was saying yesterday, it might be somebody knocked over in a road at a busy junction. They might make recommendations for a council to, to look at the road layout, etc. So, um, yeah, Regulation 28 orders. Yeah, we don't <laughs> probably don't know them in that, in using that term, but, I mean, there, there are sometimes big high-profile coroner cases, course, you know, yeah. involving hospital trusts or whatever, yes. and they make... They make recommendations mm. about how the yeah. how the hospital trust should behave or things yeah. that they need to change or yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so there we go yeah come on what about yourself what have you been looking at this week yeah there's been um, there's obviously been a lot going on in the in the news this week but I, i'm really interested in the decriminalization of the license fee mm -hmm. bbc license fee well i know it hasn't um, hasn't happened yet but there's talk that it could happen within a year and currently if someone doesn't pay the license fee then they can have a fine of up to a thousand pounds and the bbc is concerned that if thousands of people maybe hundreds of thousands of people decide not to pay the license fee when it's decriminalized how would the bbc then be funded which is there's all other kinds of issues that then come up in terms yeah. of the BBC's funding and whether it then goes to a subscription model but when you think even on even on Twitter when people on print media on Twitter people saying oh this is too important to be behind a paywall if we could imagine everything on the BBC content which then being behind a paywall which is the idea of a subscription 
it would be and I suppose so many people, honest, but yeah. Um, the honest currently is on the CPS to prosecute. It would be for the BBC to pursue for the courts, which would cost them money, to pursue yeah. non license paying people, I suppose. Yeah, well, the BBC already contracts out the uh, collection and and and, and uh, en enforcement of, of the license fee already. So, and they're already paying for that. So, yeah, there would be a number of difficulties with it. I mean, given that the we'll come back to this later on in the yeah. podcast, but given that the BBC's already just announced four hundred and fifty job losses amongst mm -hmm. journalists, closing down a couple of programs. Lord Hall, chair the chair of the BBC, says if if we lose the license fee, then CBBS forget about it. So, there, there's <laughs> going to be quite a lot. More of this, I think, because one of the one of the strategies that defenders of the BBC have been using and will probably continue to lose is they'll be saying to people, "Well, okay, so you don't want to pay the license fee. Which part of the BBC do you want to sacrifice? Because it might be CBBS or Radio One or the Derbyshire programme or Newsnight. And every time you put that to people, they go, "Oh yeah, everything but Newsnight or everything but CBBS or everything but you know everything but this, but this, but this." And of course, the BBC is all of those things together. I think that's. I think that's right. I think people forget just the breadth of content that the BBC uh -huh. produces, and how in, in how important it is for, in, particularly in terms of regional, regional coverage and regional news. Might say they, you know, overreach themselves and they should, you know, have yeah. a more lean, you know, concentrate on what it does best. You know, maybe but I know that's one of the criticisms, but you know, seem to have uh, to expand it everywhere really. And maybe that's not very remit. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and I think that it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how it how it pans out, not just this year, but over the coming years, mm. to see what the BBC, how the BBC evolves, and what it becomes. Itself, yeah. yeah. It's Pete here. This is just a little update to the podcast because um, at this point in the original recording, I was talking about uh, the arrest of some people in connection with the murder of Lyra McKee in April last year in Derry, the, uh, the journalist who was, who was killed um, while covering a demonstration. Uh, immediately, almost immediately after we put the podcast um, online, there was a statement came in from the Police Service of Northern Ireland. So I'll just read that um, to you now just to update things. Detectives from the PSI, PSNI's major investigation team have charged a 52-year-old man with the murder of 29-year-old journalist Lyra McKee, who was shot dead by terrorists in Derry, Londonderry, in eight, on the 18th of April 2019. The man from the city who was arrested by detectives yesterday and taken to Musgrave Serious Crime Suite is also charged with possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life and professing to be a member of a proscribed organisation. He'll appear at Londonderry Magistrates Court on Thursday the 13th of February. Detective Superintendent Jason Murphy said, I've always said a number of individuals were involved with the gunman on the night Lira was killed. And while today is significant for the investigation, the quest for evidence to bring the gunman to justice remains active and ongoing. So that's the, the statement from the PSNI. Uh, I added earlier on that friends of the, the murdered journalist and writer pointed out that the arrests and this charge um, happened on the, on the same week that the, the, the first same-sex marriage took place in Northern Ireland. It's a cause that was very close to Lyra's heart, and it's an issue that her partner, Sarah Canning, has continued to campaign for since her death. Back to the podcast. So I, I remind you, you're listening to Bang to Rights from the Journalism Department here at Manchester Metropolitan University. Remember, you can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang if you've got comments of your own or if you want to ask us any questions about any of the topics we're covering on this edition of the podcast or any of the other podcasts. But the main business for today, really, I think, is the announcement from 
the digital secretary, Nikki Morgan, that they're the government is minded, they say, minded to appoint the communications watchdog Ofcom as a regulator to enforce rules to make the internet a safer place, they say. It's, they, they made the announcement, um, Nikki Morgan and the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, made the announcement in the context of the government's response to the a, a public consultation uh, on the online harms white paper. This is a document where the government wants to implement various changes, legal and legally enforceable changes to the on online policing system in the, in the UK. Um, they say that the move is targeted particularly at protecting children and vulnerable people online and to give consumers, I'm reading from the press release here, to give consumers greater confidence to use technology. It will provide the certainly certain technology businesses need to flourish and innovate while creating a fair and proportionate regulatory environment. What do we think of this? Is it going to be, it, it, I mean, it, the, it seems to be aiming at the internet more mm. in the widest possible <clears throat> sense. So Facebook, uh, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, all of yeah. them. Is, is it likely to stick, do you think, Carmel? I think the devil, sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, um, I don't know. I think it will, it will, like as I think Dave was going to say, it'll depend how it plays out in mm. practice. I think the real difficulty is, is that these platforms, their headquarters are overseas. So, and the, the internet is not, it's not just within one nation state. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's going to be the difficulty with put enforcing rules. I think they've tried yeah. various times to, you know, to regulate Twitter, for example, and Twitter just turns around and says, well, we're not within your jurisdiction. I think the devil will be in the detail, but I think the crucial point seems to me to be that um, the idea that they're no longer content hosts, they are, they are effectively being regarded as publishers and therefore liable legally for what is on their platforms, which again has implications for, you know, for journalism, actually. You know? um, so I think that's one really interesting um, paradigm shift that now we're viewing social media platforms yeah. not just as platforms as hosts but as publishers, but as publishers responsible yeah. for what is published yeah. and the other one is who definition of harm you know that's going to be a tricky one isn't it you know how do you define harm and i think with children it might be quite easy reasonably easy to, to define that term yeah as you take it wider you're going to encroach into what some a large group of people might say is personal freedom freedom of speech um, that's where it becomes a bit murkier. Yeah, I mean, further down the government statement, they say that um, this won't stop adults from accessing or posting legal content, mm. which some people may find offensive. Oh. Um, so that's one exception, I think. Um, the regulation will only apply to companies that allow the sharing of user-generated content, for example, through comments, forums, or video sharing. And then they go on to say fewer than 5% of UK businesses will be in scope. So in... In, though, in those terms, it looks like actually, Carmel, your, your point that Facebook and Twitter and the rest of them, they're domiciled somewhere else. And so it looks like they not, may not be in the scope of this legislation at all. But also as well, I think when, you, when, you're, talking, when you're talking about children, the, uh, Facebook and other platforms will already say that these, they do recommend that children shouldn't have accounts. Friends well, I mean, yeah, I mean, not children under, under 18, as we would... Uh, look at children legally in this country but I think it, under 13s and recommended not to have a Facebook yeah. profile so they could they could just move everything up to 18 and then say it's the onus on the yeah, parental parents. control yeah 
Yeah. I think parental control is big. You know, it's education as well as 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 uh, legalisation, isn't it? That has to be the key. I think they would say. But uh, it's a major shift for Ofcom. If Ofcom is chosen, you know, it's a huge chunk of extra responsibility, and I think the policing of it is going to be very interesting to see, and uh, the culture change. But I think it's always the knock and get an open door, and you know the NSPCC welcome it, and it's hard to kind of argue against, um, you know, the logic of this. But but the practicalities, I think, you know, the jurisdictions and the where the headquarters are based, what level of penalties, that's the really interesting part of it. Yeah, I mean, in fact, the announcement which came out in the middle of the middle of this morning on Wednesday was a little less than it had been billed. Um, you know, the kind of overnight coverage of it as they were trailing ahead to it. And again, even further down the statement, they said that the government will publish a full consultation response in the spring. This will set out further details of the potential enforcement powers that Ofcom may have. So they're still being pretty cagey about it. But I think, as you, as you say, Dave, we can kind of see the direction of travel here. Yeah. And Ofcom, I think, is, is, you know, it's further expansion for them. And that their Ofcom, I think, is quite keen to do that. And one, one of the other announcements today is a new, is a new head of Ofcom. Yes, um, I noticed that. To, uh, to take over there and the new chair of the, of the board as well. So, um, I hope that was in the job spec. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess that will be one of the, yeah. the um, when when the uh, the new boss does take over, that's going to be one of our biggest jobs, sure. actually, is to begin yeah. to sort out this mm -hmm. this online harm stuff. And uh, it's going to be, I mean, it will be a bit of a watching brief for us, I think, and we'll just so. see how we'll almost yeah. certainly come back to it later I on. think it's a fight back against, you know, the, the dominance of the big things, Facebook, Apple, you know, Netflix, Google. Yeah. But I think, I, I mean, I guess people who are supporting this and maybe people in Ofcom would say this, that it's that wider international context that we need to look at. Oh. So people have overnight have been pointing to the, re the regimes that operate in Germany and I think in New Zealand and saying, well, this is the, kind of, this is the way that some countries are moving. Yeah, Germany's We are part of that wider movement. Really progressive. If that's, you know, if that's the way you perceive it. They've done some really interesting uh, regulation uh, of it. Good, good culture of regulation. So if, if you can do it there, why not here? Yeah. So that decision to give Ofcom policing powers over the internet has also broadly been welcomed by the newly elected chair of the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee at the House of Commons. The Solihull MP Julian Knight is himself a former journalist and he took to Twitter on Tuesday to explain what his priorities are for the DCMS committee in the coming parliament. I was really enthused in the last parliament being a part of the committee. The way in which we dealt with fake news, disinformation, the way in which we dealt with big data and also just more sort of retail issues such as loot boxes, how we looked in terms of online harms. And what I want to do as chair is take that work forwards, but also look at other areas as well in terms of broadband. I also want to look at the BBC and how we ensure that our national broadcaster survives for many years to come by basically effectively seeing how the pathway leads for that national broadcaster. And also I'd like to take effectively the committee a little bit more out of Westminster, get into the country at large, talk about areas such as regional tourism, but also find exactly how digital cultural media sports actually impacts right out there in our communities. So a, a pretty non-committal start from Julian Knight there and no hints really about one of the biggest jobs for the committee, whether they're going to support or moderate or oppose the government's plans for the BBC, which 
you were talking about earlier, Carmel. So, I mean, is what do you think the kind of political mood around all of this is? Because there's the there's the financial stuff about the license fee, but there's also a very strong political colour to all of this as well, isn't there? Well, I think what um, it do, do you mean in terms of party politics, or do you think it, it mean in terms of how the public are viewing the? Well, well, both. But let's start off with the party politics side of it, because the government has. You know, immediately after the election, one of the first things that government ministers were saying in the new government was the BBC's in our in our target line in, in our line yeah. of fire here. Well, I think it's I think it said a lot that when Boris Johnson made his Brexit speech, that the communications team chose to put that speech out themselves yeah. instead of inviting other press in to broadcast that which could have been the BBC it might have been Sky or ITN or whoever but the fact that they decided to do that Control. themselves yeah um, I think that the media landscape is changing the the fact that you know the, the fact that the government can do that themselves do they need these outlets in the same way and they understand that people's viewing habits are changing yeah and have changed and the BBC uh, and they see that as a way in to say well hang on you, that's an outdated model that you're putting forward. Yeah. Why should people pay for, you know, something that actually most services now, my daughter doesn't watch any TV, as we would say. Yeah. It's all streamed, it's non-linear. And, and I think that's an interesting argument from the government to kind of, you can see where they're using that to, as a political baton. And I think that it did... Um, it, I think that the BBC was harmed a lot by the over um, you know the the pensioners license mm. license fees I think because the government had said that they had given the BBC the money for that and then the BBC said that they hadn't had the mon money and there's a there's a two in there's a toing and froing there so I think that politically that wasn't um, such a good move for them is it a weak weaker side of the the government's argument the, the kind of things that I alluded to earlier on in, in the podcast that the BBC is is a universal service um, and in the sense, free at the point of delivery, a little bit like the NHS, that you don't have to pay for each individual programme. You get the whole lot and you can watch whatever you want. You can pick and choose from whatever you want, whether it's uh, whether it's terrestrial TV or whether it's uh, from the iPlayer or whatever, or, or, or through the online um, different versions of the BBC. Is the government's argument about the BBC weak when it comes to that universal service? Because as I said, people, people will say, well, I like this part of the BBC. Uh, and they like to be able to pick and choose, but the fact that it's a universal service right across the country um, is actually still quite a strong point for the BBC, is it not? Well, I think it is, and I think if people had to pay for what the BBC is providing in the same way that they pay for Amazon Prime or Netflix or other subscription yeah. services, they would find they probably were paying a lot more than they yeah. pay on the licence fee. But I, I still think it's the fact that people feel that they don't have the choice about that and that's where they, a, a lot of the problems are coming. In terms of the kind of direct political attack on the BBC, because other people are raising the point that um, the government has basically blocked any, any ministers from going on the Today programme and a couple of other um, high profile BBC programmes. Um, that comes in the context of this this walkout by the lobby journalists from from Downing Street from that briefing last week, which we just missed on the podcast actually because we were we were doing other stuff with Claire Sanderson last week. But um, the there is some concern amongst uh, political journalists about the position that the government is taking towards 
journalism generally. Do you think, Dave? Do you think they're they're talking about well-founded fear years or fears uh, here, or, or is I it? I don't know. I think I read a piece by Peter Wilby in the New Statesman, and I thought he kind of he said, "Well, it's a big fuss, but actually, you know, if you think about it, times have moved on massively, and um, the idea of lobby correspondents turning up a particular." time and with a particular past and having a particular prestige to talk to ministers and it's all off the record in these days of Twitter and you know social media and actually he was accusing them of being you know a clique a uh, sort of privileged clique who really were next to near mouthpieces for ministers who didn't really look at the issues in the way that they impacted you know Joe public and maybe you know and governments have always tried to control you know as we know the methods of communication, but I think this government has a, a confidence and a bravado about it, which, which it wants to flex its muscles. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not arguing against, you know, get rid of lobby journalists, but I think he, it was a good point he made that, you know, it fits into a pattern of changing social mores and, you know, maybe this model no longer works anymore. Whether that's a wider attack on, on journalists, <coughs> not sure. Dominic Ponsford in the in Press Gazette last week, um, suggested that maybe it was about time that the, the Downing Street briefings were televised, which I think is something that you and I and Jez spoke yes. about in an earlier episode yeah. of the podcast. I'm not suggesting that Dominic gets his ideas from, from us, but who knows. But um, yeah. would, Carmel, do you think that would be a step forward, given the sort of things that Dave was talking about, if the, if the press briefings became much more public and visible? Well, I think it's... It depends on how that then is broad... On how that then is broadcast. Mm. Um, but it does change in the way that a lot of a lot of people would work. So, say if that was broad, if that was broadcast live, there would there would be a lot less in terms of insider knowledge from the lobbyists. And it's it, it's but it's the same. It's the same with everything. It's not just with politics. It's like any kind of press conference has. It's changed the way that it's yeah. that it's reported now because somebody can put something out on Twitter immediately. They're not waiting for someone else to go and edit a piece or. Put, put it out like however many hours later so I think it's just politics has got to catch up with that yeah I mean that's the grenade that Guido Fox threw into the into the room a couple of, of weeks ago yeah. when when their reporters started uh, live tweeting from the from the briefings and the uh, the, the lobby said no no you can't do this and mm. they said well we're, we're doing it anyway and, and mm. now it, it's happened and they've, they've had to kind of accept it so things are already changing by the looks of things yeah generally yeah. I think it's interesting times ahead for the media yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll wrap it up pretty much at, at that point. I think, Dave. Uh, just before we go, though, what what have we got coming up for for the students next week? Because we've got a couple of real life court cases, hopefully. Yeah. Around. Well, it's employability week. So yesterday we we I did a class on the inquest. We're going to go to the inquest on Thursday, and I think we're, you're after Crown Court. We're going to go maybe. Go to, to Crown Court, Court and watch part of the Abedi trial. So <clears> as <throat> as listeners may know, the the trial of the the brother of the the man, the arena bomber is is taking place at the the old bailey in london but it's being there's a video feed of that of the trial to uh, one of the courtrooms in in manchester crown court partly for the benefit of of local journalists here uh, and there were a number of them when i was in there the other day but also for for bereaved families um, so that they can and, and victims so that they can see what's going on and they can see some of the trials so um, we'll we'll go along to that at some point next week, and hopefully have a little bit of a report yeah. back on on what's going on with with the trial um, this time next week. 
So um, that, that's about it. We will be back next week. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Stitcher, and we'll drop straight onto your podcast feed. You'll also find us on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. But that's it for, for this week. Remember to tweet us at RightsBang if there are issues from your reading or from your lectures you'd like us to cover in future episodes. In the meantime, we have been Bang to Rights. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. And thanks, Carmel. Welcome to the podcast. Hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Pete. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.